0: Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Psalm 95, please, if you'll turn to that in your Bibles. Psalm 95. We're talking about worship and the core elements that make for biblical worship. One of the things that greatly concerns me is the fact that we tend to, in this culture, worship God in a casual way. We tend to think of God as our buddy, as our uh, equal. God is a sovereign God who reigns over this universe. The Bible refers to him as a God who is to be reverenced or feared. Now, there is a sense, of course, and this psalm reveals it, in which we are to understand that God not only is sovereign and holy, other, but God is also transcendent in that he knows the hairs of our head and loves us with that kind of personal love. So the principle, as we continue to talk about legacy building, the principle is this. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that the worship of God must never be approached casually and that true worship is non-negotiable in its essence. Because it is the primary means of our spiritual development and our relationship with God. Now, in our vision statement in this church, we list certain core values. And one of those core values, the first especially, one of the the first core value is this, that doctrine defines who we are. We are a people who believe in the doctrines of grace that our God is a sovereign God over the affairs of men, that our God is sovereign even over our salvation. But right next to that in our vision statement is a second core value that states this. Worship, worship when the body of Christ comes together, corporate worship is the defining event in the life of this church. And it will leave its thumbprints over everything else we do. So we believe that what we're doing here today is non-negotiable. Now how we do it is negotiable. There are many negotiable aspects to worship. There can be contemporary worship, traditional worship. There can be song selections that are different from place to place. There are cultural issues that all of us have, cultural baggage that we all bring into a worship service. I like to refer to it as our ecclesiastical baggage. Some of us are from more staid and traditional backgrounds. Some of us are from more diverse backgrounds where there is a a greater freedom in worship than others. Those are all negotiable. But as the psalm unfolds, one thing becomes clear, there are three non-negotiable aspects of true biblical worship. Now, the last time we were together, we talked about two of them. One being that we are to give thanksgiving and praise in song to our God. Singing is essential to what we do in worship. We are to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs unto our God. This psalm, by the way, is a liturgical prophecy. Now, what we mean by that is that it speaks of liturgy, that is how we are to come together corporately for worship, but it does so with a prophetic undertone. The prophetic undertone is this. There is a stark warning There is a specific warning given to the church against worshiping in a casual or unbiblical way. So he gives us these core elements of singing and praying, and we saw all of that the last time we were together, but then he gives us a third one in this liturgical prophecy If you'll look with me beginning at verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So what we are to sing about and the God we are to pray to is spoken of here in terms that are wholly other terms. That he is far above us. That we are mere creatures and he is the creator, God of the universe. So he cannot be approached as though he were our buddy. There is a casualness that is a sinfulness with which we approach God in too informal of a way. Because he is the creator God of the universe. That's what he does in these first few verses. He takes pains to make that point. But then notice in verse 7, the tone seems to shift. He says, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This same creator God that he spoke of in the first six verses, he now speaks of as being the shepherd of this pasture, this sheep, this flock of sheep. You and I are that flock. Now the terms become very personal. The relationship has changed. It is no longer God our creator, the holy other transcendent one, who is in view here, but it is rather God, our shepherd, the imminent one, the God who is our shepherd God. Think of what the word of God reveals to us of the amazing love of God and how that love has pursued you and one. We have not added anything to our salvation. There is not one single thing we can do to earn or to deserve, or to claim to have earned or deserved our salvation. We are all like stubborn, stupid sheep, as Isaiah accurately puts it, who have gone astray. We are like that sheep who has gone astray. But God has pursued us. God has found us. God has brought us back. Thus, out of the sense of our relationship to this God as our Redeemer, we kneel before that God, we sing to that God, we pray to that God for the amazing love he has bestowed upon us. Now, in the context of singing and praying, we do not do this for God's benefit. We do it for our own. We do not pray so that God will respond to our prayers by doing what we want. God does not sit in the heavens and act and react according to what we think we need or desire. The purpose of that singing and the purpose of that praying is to bring us into an intimate relationship so that we might know the mind of God and know how God is going to work out his will so that we might be in tune with what he's already doing or what he plans to do. We cannot approach God in our singing and in our praying as though, well, now God, you just need to stand back now and listen to what we have to say. Because as you're sitting there in the heavens, the creator God of the universe, the one who ordered my salvation, the one who saved me and redeemed me with his act of love, grace and forgiveness, you now need to obey me and do what I desire. It doesn't work that way. That is why God commands us to worship him, not for his benefit. Not to build his ego, but that we might understand what the God of the universe is doing or plans to do. So now it is the voice of God in verse 8 who admonishes us. He says, today, if you hear his voice, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Now, he introduces a third component of worship. We've talked about singing, we've talked about praying. Now he introduces a third non-negotiable core element of biblical worship. He says, "If you hear my voice." So the question is, how do we hear the voice of God? He commands us to hear His voice. We are not merely to come together just to sing and pray. We are to come together to sing and pray to get our hearts in tune with that Almighty, Omniscient, Omnipotent God so that He might speak to us and we might hear His voice. The centrality of preaching is a prophetic event. Now, let me see if I can explain this to you. What I am doing up here is not a homily. I refuse to refer to this as a homily. I refuse to refer to this as a sermonette. I refuse to refer to this as a speech. I even refuse to refer to this as a Bible lesson or a teaching lesson. Although those elements are present, there is something unique about what we are doing here in this context. Preaching is a prophetic event. Now, I am not for one moment saying that I am a prophet. Listen closely to me. In the biblical Old Testament and New Testament sense of the word, there are no more prophets. No one can stand up and say today that he has revelatory prophecy gifts. What God gave us in the Old Testament were the prophets who had the true gift of prophecy. And through them, through this human agency, God created the written word. He spoke through the prophets, through Hosea and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Moses and all the others who became the conduits of revealed truth so that the written word, the written record may be recorded. When we come to the New Testament, we have the same prophets, only they are now called apostles. The apostles are the revelatory agents, the conduits of revealed truth. And so as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the apostle Paul and Peter and Jude and and all the others as they framed the canon of the New Testament, God used them as human agents, as conduits of divine truth. So what they wrote, what they recorded for us that we now call the New Testament scriptures and what the prophets of the Old Testament wrote for us And recorded as the Old Testament scriptures, those 39 books of the old, those 27 books of the new, those 66 chapters of this one great book were filtered to us, handwritten and penned by the heart of God through the agency of the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the new. Any man who stands up today and speaks of himself in the context of being that kind of a prophet is adding to the scriptures. Because you see, if God is still speaking revealed truth through human agency, then this book is not yet finished. The canon is not yet complete. And if you come to the very last chapter of the very last book of this wonderful masterpiece, you will find a warning there. There is a cursing a judgment that will fall on any man or any woman who adds to the prophecy of this book. So any person who stands up today and calls themselves a prophet in that God is revealing truth through them, apart from the scriptures, is speaking as a false prophet. Now, you say, Pastor, just a minute ago, you called what you're doing a prophetic event. Therefore, you are a prophet. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that you and I are engaging each other under the tutelage of this book. We are coming under the preaching and teaching of what God has already revealed through the prophets and the apostles. In that sense, that sense of forth telling, F-O-R-T-H telling, prophecy is happening in the sense of foretelling, that is looking down through the future, that kind of prophetic gift has ceased. God has revealed to us everything we need to know right here. It's here in the canon of his word. So why do I call this a prophetic event? Martin Luther used to pray that God would allow his people only to hear what urges Christ. He used to pray something that you hear me pray because I kind of got it from him. Uh, he, He used to pray something like this. Lord, stop their ears to anything that's not biblical. Anything that I say that's not the truth. Anything I say that's not in the word. May their ears be stopped. May they not hear that. But Lord, wherever your word is being proclaimed, wherever Christ is being urged, then open their ears to hear. Unstop their ears Soften their hearts. So, in the sense that I proclaim to you or declare to you the inerrancy of God's word, in the sense that I declare the truth of God's word, this is a prophetic event. Now, why do we call it an event? Because we are gathered here in the context of public and corporate worship. What I am doing here and what you are doing here has essential need in the spiritual development of each of our lives. Now, what we have here in verse eight and nine, he says, today, if you hear his voice where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did, you're going to notice there's a change of voice now. He commands us to hear his voice. We are not merely to come together. We are to come together to hear his voice. We do so in preparation by the singing and the praying, but then we must open our hearts and open our ears to hear what God has to say. Now, listen, I am the first one to tell you preaching is fallible. There are some tapes out there I've told you in the past I wish I could burn. There are records of things that I have taught over the years that now I know are not true. The core elements of my preaching and teaching for 38 years have been to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. I rescind or recant none of that. I know that the core elements of preaching, the fundamentals of the doctrines that preach and urge Christ, have been solid for 38 years. That is a prophetic ministry. But preaching and preachers are fallible. And this is an event. Now, let me tell you something. Even evil thoughts can enter your mind when you're worshiping God. Even impure thoughts, untrue thoughts, unbiblical thoughts can enter your mind when you're engaged in worship. This is why Psalm 95 makes such a serious effort to say to you, you need to hear the voice of God. Then he puts it somewhat negatively. He says in verse 9, he says, Now he gives an example, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. You've heard the expression hardening of the heart. There is a spiritual coronary disease the hardening of the soul, the hardening of the heart. Hardening of the heart is the exact opposite of listening to the voice of God. To listen to the voice of God is one thing. To fail to listen to the voice of God, the scripture refers to as the hardening of heart. The hardening of heart. Now he gives us an example by what he means by the hardening of heart. He takes these people back to an event they were all familiar with. He takes us back to the 17th chapter of the book of Exodus. And he recounts the story of how the children of Israel, weeks after they had left Egypt, probably no more than one month after they had left Egypt, The same Egypt where they saw the hand of God ten times work a miracle of deliverance. The same Egypt where that cruel Passover, that seemingly cruel Passover... That night when they sat in their houses with the blood applied to their doorpost, listening to the wails and the screams of the families whose firstborns were taken from them who did not have the blood applied. They were there. Weeks later, he's referring to these people after they had come through the Red Sea. After that parting of the Red Sea, that miraculous unveiling of the finger of God who simply zipped open the Red Sea, allowed them to cross on dry land, and then zipped it back over top of the Egyptian army. This miraculous deliverance, they had just experienced it. 1.2 million people were there. With their livestock and their cattle, parenthetically, save the email, on the 600,000 that left Egypt. Because I know many of you who have some knowledge of scripture will remember that the Bible says that God delivered 600,000. That was just the men. That doesn't include the women and the children and the Egyptians, some of whom came with them, their livestock and their cattle. This is a big scene. This is a massive outpouring of God's deliverance power. Now, they had just come through that. They wandered around for a little bit, and they looked inside of their bags, and their canteens were empty, and they were thirsty. Now, as Exodus 17 opens, now, this is the the event Psalm 95 is referring to as the hardening of heart. The failure to listen to God's voice. This is that event. He says, the whole Israelite community, Exodus 17, set out from the desert of sin. Interesting word. Traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses. And said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. You ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty? Have you ever had your lips really parched, your tongue hanging out of your mouth? You're thirsty. You need water. So let's at least sympathize with the fact that these folks were thirsty. Here they are in the desert and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Now, I want you to notice what God did. The Lord answered Moses. And he said, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go. I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. And the water will come out. And the people will drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord in saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now on the heels of the Exodus with all of its incredible miracles and God's supernatural provision, they demanded that God prove himself again. By giving them water because they were thirsty. Now this is the point God wants to make here. It wasn't the thirst. It wasn't even the need that they expressed. It was the fact that they tested God. They insisted that God prove himself to them. They said, where is your God? Is there really a God who takes care of us and loves us? And if there is, why are we now thirsty? Now Moses did what God told him. He struck the rock with his rod and out of it water literally gushed. It quenched the thirst Of 1.2 plus million people, all of their livestock, and all of their cattle, they did not merely ask God to supply their needs. God never scolds us for doing that. He commands us when we pray, to pray that he would give us this day our daily bread. So it is not the fact that they prayed and expressed their need. But it is the fact that they tested him. They sought to prove him. They were experiencing strife and division against God because he did not meet their expectations. The spirit of Massa, the spirit of Meribah is evident in far too many of us when we come to worship, the spirit of Meribah, strife and testing is too evident when we come to sing and to pray and to hear his voice. Now, I want to tell you, I believe God uses corporate worship for the purpose of stabilizing us. I've referred to it this way. We are filled with the presence of God when we come together. We're filled with his word. Then we go out during the week and we do battle. And we leak. And we need to come back again to stabilize, to get our balance back, to specifically get a strategy in place as to how we're going to face the next week. The Lord Jesus was familiar with this kind of negative attitude when he often would say to his disciples, O oh, ye of little faith. He's asleep on the back of the boat. A storm comes up. These experienced fishermen who probably had been caught in many storms before knew there was something different about this storm. Because you see, storms didn't frighten them. They were fishermen. They were used to these storms. But this one frightened them. They knew they were going down. Jesus is asleep during the storm. And they shout to him, Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? And he stands up in this special storm. And he raises his hands and he calms the sea. He turns to them and he says, oh, ye of little faith. Now, why did he say that? Because just, listen to me, just probably no more than two hours before the storm hit. These same men were holding baskets in their hands. There was a crowd of people that had gathered who had no food to eat. Jesus called out to find out who had some food for these people. And they found a little boy with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. They were the ones holding the baskets. He blessed that food and 5,000 people were miraculously fed. They handed out the food. Their baskets were empty. They looked away for a second, looked back down. It was filled again. The creator was before them. The one who created the bread was before them. And with just the word, the baskets were filled. And when they were all finished filling up the baskets and feeding the people, they walked away with 12 baskets left over a couple of hours before this storm. That is called a hard heart. That is what a stubborn heart is. It is one that fails to see a God who has already proven himself and does not need to prove himself again. It grieves the spirit of God. When we come in week after week after week and we hear glowing stories of the power and majesty of our God and the testimony of what he is doing in so many lives, And we see the evident change that has come as the result of the invasion of God's spirit in people's lives. How he is bringing many to a saving knowledge of Christ. And the minute something goes wrong. We want him to prove himself again. We think we're persecuted. But there's so much more hatred of the gospel. Persecution. Christians all over the world are suffering true, true persecution. You go to work tomorrow and you try to share your faith with somebody. You tell them about Jesus and they say, yeah, it's all right for you. That's fine. Don't bother me anymore. You walk out of there. Oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. No, you're not. I don't believe for one minute. Most Americans, most of us, if not all of us sitting here, have ever experienced true persecution. What we have experienced is oppression. You know, I like to refer to myself, at least in the past, I can't really do it today, as an athlete. I played on many different teams. You know one thing for sure. If you're going to play on a team you need to prepare for who you're playing. If you are on a basketball team and you are playing an excellent team in three days and your coach comes to you and he says, you know what, we don't need to watch any films. We don't need to practice. You can go out and do whatever you want to do. You can go on out and be with whoever you want to be. We're not going to figure out where their weaknesses are. We're not going to figure out how to combat their attacks. We're not going to figure out who we should play against who, how we should team up, whether it should be a 2-3 zone or whether it should be a man-to-man. We're not going to worry about any of that. In fact, I'll tell you what, boys, just show up on game day. Everything's going to be fine. We're not going to listen to what anybody else has ever told us their experience was when they played that team. We don't really care about that. We do not care about knowing our enemy. Let me assure you of something. The enemy of the church, your enemy, knows you like a book, he knows your weaknesses. He knows your blind spots. He knows what triggers to pull. He knows what buttons to push. He knows exactly how he can trip you, trap you, deceive you, and destroy you because he has studied you like a book. We are to come here for the purpose of studying Christ. Because Christ is the one who goes before us to fight that enemy. He is our defender, he is our shield, he is our defense, and the purpose of hearing his voice is because we're going to face the enemy. But don't call it persecution. Persecution far transcends oppression. It includes oppression, and it goes beyond oppression. And it goes into the spirit world where their physical, emotional, and spiritual energies are drained from them because of intense hatred for what they believe. But we will be oppressed. And we need to know the enemy. And we need to rehearse. This is what you're doing here you're rehearsing, you're practicing. You're learning biblical truth. You're hearing the voice of God. You will need this sermon someday. You will need the word of God someday. You may not need it tomorrow, but you're going to need it. And so in verse 10, he tells us, now you'll say to yourself, by the way, he gave them the water, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But there was a heavy price tag. He says in verse 10, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. You see, God is grieved when people who ought to get it don't. When people who ought to understand it don't. God is, in fact, that word angry, by the way, is used in other translations as the word grieved. In fact, one translation actually uses the word, they make me nauseous. And that's pretty close to the meaning of the word. God was angry. He was grieved. These people made him nauseous. And because they tested him and proved him, they would never set foot in the promised land. There's a price tag for unbelief. They died in the desert of their own making. Verse 11, I will swear an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Listen to me, privileged saint. You and I who sit on this side of the cross We come to hear the word. We come to hear what God has to say to us. The one thing he is calling us to is rest. With all the noise and the confusion in your life, all that noise that you left behind, all that clutter in your mind that's going to regroup tomorrow, all that busyness, All those details of raising a family and building a marriage and making the necessary ends meet and and the physical health problems that many of you have and the emotional struggles that many of you also have. All of that noise, all of that clutter, you need to come apart for the purpose of entering his rest. That's what the Sabbath day is. It is a day in which we rest In the power of his resurrection, we refill the spiritual drug. Back to the rock for a moment. Corinthians tells us and defines for us and names who that rock is. That rock is Christ. Christ is the rock at Horeb. It is Christ who has been struck. It is Christ who has been struck And out of that striking, out of that death on the cross comes the water, the life, the spirit that fills you and me with his rest. We don't have that unless he is struck. Now, the question is, will we receive that rest or will we demand of God that he prove himself again? Will we harden our hearts in such a way? that the word goes in here, this ear, and runs out this ear as though there's nothing in between to catch it. You and I come with needs. Preaching's hard. I gotta tell you, preaching is hard. When I am finished, I am exhausted. Now there's a reason for that. Uh, Science uh, projects have been designed to take a preacher's sermon and divide it out into the same number of work hours somebody with manual labor would have to work. For every 20 minutes of a pastor's sermon, the equivalent of 20 man hours of physical labor is exerted. So in my sermons that are like 21 minutes long... (laughs) There is the equivalent of many, many hours of physical. Why? Why am I telling you that? Because you see, we're in an event here. And that event is the word of God. And the battle that I must do up here is the same battle you must do down there. The word is out here. It's being disseminated. It's being being explained. And it's floating here in the air. Somebody's got to get it. The thing you have... To understand, I hope, I hope you've known me long enough now in 38 years. I hope you understand that before I preach it to you, I have to preach it to me. We call this consubstantial preaching. That is, it's filtered through my life so that I can own it so that I can experience it first. I struggle with the same things you do. My mind drifts up here the same way your mind drifts. I hear the same voice of the evil one whispering in my ear, it's not true, it's not true, the same way you do. We sit here every week and we do battle. But friends, the rock has already been struck. The water's gushing out. The water of life. Jesus stood up on that great day as the water was being poured out. He said, come all of you who are thirsty, take a drink, learn of me. I am that water. And every week when we come together, we present that water to you. Because tomorrow, you're going to have to face the enemy. And he has already planned what he's going to do to you. So you need to plan of what you in the power of Christ are going to do to him. And what victories you're going to win in spite of the fact that he has launched an all-out assault against you. The next time we're together, I want to tell you specifically how to prepare to come here. Some of it you're not going to like. Some of it you're going to look at and say, well, that's too hard. Some of it you're going to look at and say, well, I don't know if I can do that. This coming from the same people who will travel an hour and a half in bumper-to-bumper traffic with hotheads and anger management people out on the highways to go to a sporting event that they've just paid several hundred dollars to see, With your makeup on and your hats and your clothing and your colors and for an hour and a half to get there and an hour and a half to get back and the travel and the pain and the heartache of all of that in the middle for four hours, you will yell and you will scream and you will pour yourself out. You're even so tired that on the way home, you may feel like you want to fall asleep. That coming from the same people who can't give God five minutes to prepare to meet him. So, I want to teach you what's necessary to prepare to come here to worship God in an uncasual way. So, I offer you today that word. Let me close with something that I read from an old preacher, uh, Dr. Ray Stedman. I remember many years ago when I was first starting to preach, I read a lot of material I can get my hands on by this pastor. He summarizes this passage this way. Listen to this, then we'll close. It is really mental health, peace of heart, peace of mind, a sense of living out of adequacy. That is what God wants for you and me. He wants us to be adequate, to be able to cope with whatever may come. That adequacy is his provision for us. It will come to us as we listen to his word. There are many things that we need to learn about this, and his word will guide us along the way. But if we do not listen to his words, we too can worship for 40 years, and at the end of it, we shall have so hardened our hearts that God may finally say, you shall not enter into my rest. There is no other way. There is no alternative path. There is no drug you can take that will give you rest. There is no pursuit you can follow, no book you can read, no practice you can undertake that will bring you to peace of heart. There is simply no alternative. You cannot come into rest if you will not listen to his word. That is why it is so important that when we worship together, we listen to the word of God and we let it correct us. Let us sit under the judgment of the word. Let it search us and find us out and change us. And thus we shall glorify the God who made us and give unto him the glory that is due his name. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.